No one like you. There's a truth older than the ages, a promise of things yet to come. There is one born for our salvation, Jesus. A light that overwhelms the darkness, a kingdom that forever reigns, a freedom that, from the chains that bind us, Jesus. That's why we're here, right? To focus on him and to learn and grow in grace. Welcome to our study in Romans chapter 8. I'm excited about this series over the summer to uh, dig into Romans 8. I'm about to use one of my favorite idioms. I guess it's an idiom. Uh, where are the English people when I need them? In English, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is David Mingle. For those of you who do know me, my name is Frank. That <laughs> just always has puzzled me why that is. I mean, my name's the same whether you know me or don't know me. So my name is David Mingle. I'm one of the elders here and uh, privileged to uh, lead us in this study through Romans chapter 8. Before we get into that, I would like you to think of something. I would like you to think of what the perfect life would look like for you. If you were to design the perfect life, what would that be? I'm just going to give you a few, mo few moments just to think about that. All right. Well, the good news is today's study is going to tell us how to get that perfect life. Now, I don't know if it'll look like the one you have envisioned or not, but we're going to look into what a perfect life looks like. Uh, that's actually the title of today's uh, uh, session. Uh, one of Matt's long-distance mentors, uh, he referred to during his teaching as John Piper, uh, referred to Romans chapter 8 as perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible. Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. It tells us why our world is the way it is and why we are the way we are. It tells us what God's goals are for us and how we can get there. It tells us what the future holds for us and how sure we can really be of that future. So uh, with that as an introduction, I'd like us to, to pause and we'll ask the author of the book to open our eyes to what he has to say for us today. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the reminders already this morning that you are the beautiful one that we adore, that you are the one whose presence we seek, and you are the one who comes to rescue us and to save us. And now we come to you and as we continue our time of worship together, we worship you by coming to your word, acknowledging that we desire to hear from you this morning. We are weak human beings and have nothing on our own to get to you, but yet you have left your word to us. We pray that you would open our eyes to see things that we may need to see this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're not going to stay there very long today for reasons that I will tell you, but uh, turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, that's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the uh, Bibles in the Pew or New International Version. Uh, and I'm sure there are other translations out there, so the, the words may differ a little bit, but the meanings will be the, be the same. So Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There are two words to notice here right away. He says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Well, it's pretty strong words. The word condemn means to declare to be wrong after weighing the evidence. To declare to be wrong after weighing the evidence. Or to pronounce guilty. You condemn somebody, you weigh the evidence against them, and you determine that the evidence is correct, and you pronounce them guilty, you declare them to be wrong. Well, there needs to be a standard by which we are measured if we're going to be condemned, and that standard also comes in here in verse 2. He says, the law, the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, we're going to dig into more what that means when we get back to Romans 8, but the word law here is mentioned. So, law becomes the standard by which we are measured to determine whether we are guilty. It's the evidence by which we are weighed. And then somehow, which we're going to dig into as we go through this study, is that Jesus is involved somehow in this bringing us to no condemnation. So, this is the premise of where we're going, and as you see the title, From Condemnation to Conquerors, uh, that's where we'll be going through the summer. I invite you along for the journey. Uh, If you are an unbelieving skeptic here for whatever reasons, uh, maybe you're atheist or agnostic or whatever reason you're here, if you are a novice in the faith, if you are a more mature believer, I'm trusting that there'll be something here for all of us as we wrestle together and engage with who God is and His claims on our lives. So I invite us all to join. There's a third word here, though, that we need to pay attention to, which is going to direct our study today. And Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, those of you who have heard me teach before, if you see the word therefore, what question should you ask? What's it there for, right? If you see therefore, what's the therefore therefore? Because it's referring back to something else that he said. This is called context. Context is the the idea of where this passage fits in the larger story. And When Paul says there is therefore now, he's referring, first of all, back to Romans 7, which we're going to look at next week. But we're going to go even further back today, which is why I said we're not going to be in in, uh, Romans 8 very long. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where this law, this standard by which we are measured, the evidence that is weighed to see whether we are guilty or not guilty, where this came from originally. So that's where we're going to go next. I invite you back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is the fifth book from the beginning of the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And I certainly would invite you to follow along uh, because uh, you don't want me to slip something by you if, if it's not really in there. So you have to check me out here. So Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5 actually, as I had promised before, addresses the perfect life. What does the perfect life look like? And we're going to look at this in four sections. There's the setting, there's God speaks, the people respond to God speaking, and then God responds to them. So let's go through Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 to 6 first. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. 
The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the setting is, here is this group of people who are called Israel after their forefather, the man named Jacob or Israel. These are his descendants who are gathered together. They were slaves in Egypt. God has delivered them from Egypt and brought them now to this mountain. He has called them into relationship with himself. He's brought them to this mountain and he is going to speak to them. And so that's the setting. And if you look down to, to the end of that chapter, to verse 33, we see what God's purpose is in this meeting. He says, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. The perfect life. That's what God wants. He says, I want... If you follow this, you will live, that is, you will live and not die. You are going to do well, that is, you're going to not just get by or even worse, suffer, and you are going to live long in the land. When you look at what that means in the Old Testament, it refers to being in a place of security and peace and rest and safety. So what God's promised here is that perfect life. Now, I don't know what your perfect life looked like when you were there, but I'm sure there was some element of living, going well, and living long in a place of peace, rest, and security. And that's what God is promising here. So that's the setting. Well, let's see. Now, God is going to speak. And God speaks. He gives to us what we know as the law and, more specifically, the Ten Commandments. Those, somebody who had the time to do this went through the, the Bible and counted the total number of commandments that God gives in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy and came up that there are 613 of them. Uh, God boils them down to 10 right here, which all of that is focused. So let's read this now. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your day may be long, and that, you may go well, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These Ten Commandments reveal God's perfect standard for his people to live by for that perfect life. Remember, he said, if you follow these, you've got the perfect life. You're going to live, it's going to go well with you, and you will live long in the land. This is God's perfect standard for his people to live by for the perfect life. Each of these commandments, then, you could say, uh, honor your father and mother for your own good. You shall not murder for your own good. You shall not commit adultery for your own good. We look at these and we think God is some kind of cosmic killjoy who's determined to make our life miserable. And he says, no, this is for your prosperity. This is for your thriving. This is for your flourishing. You need to do these things. So God gave to his people his perfect law, which they were to perfectly obey in order to have the perfect life in perfect relationship with him. Anybody want to sign up for that? Right? Anybody? All right. One, two. Yeah, maybe a couple. All right. So let's, we don't want the perfect life with God, right, by perfectly obeying so that, all right. So God speaks to them this law, and as I was going through this, I asked the question, how, how many of us have ever said, I wish God would come down and speak to me? Have you ever said that? Yeah, I just wish God would come down, speak to me, tell me what he wants, because uh, life is confusing, life is chaotic, and I want to know what I should do. Well, now we go to this, we saw the setting, we see that God speaks. Now the people respond to God coming and giving them this law, and we see that in verses 22 to 27. These words, the Lord spoke to all of the assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of this fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die." For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us, all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. Be careful what you wish for, right? God came down and spoke to them. And what was their response? Fear danger. They were afraid because here was God talking to them, and the presence of God talking to them made them fear for their very lives. They said, if we hear God speak anymore, we're going to die. And don't write this off as some, them being some kind of wimps or being, um, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that, being some kind of wimps, because when God came down on the mountain Deuteronomy here doesn't even come close to describing it, but look in verse 22. The Lord spoke to you, all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, and with a loud voice. 
When Moses recounts this story back in Exodus 20, he says that not only was there this fire and the cloud and the darkness, there was a loud trumpet, and he said the mountain itself was trembling. Just imagine a mountain, right? We think of these mountains as these things that are unmovable, these things that are big, these things that, well, you know, some of you know that I bike. You have to bike over them. They're not easy to, there's these big things. Well, what happens when God puts his foot on a mountain? The mountain crumbles under the weight of God. The people said here, we have seen, in verse 24, we have seen his glory and his greatness, or his glory and his majesty. That word glory carries the idea of weightiness, of being heavy. Greatness carries the idea of being a great quantity, a massive amount. They have seen God's weight and his quantity, his amount. They have seen his glory and his greatness. Come down on this mountain, and I don't know what God put on the mountain. It could have been his little toe. Then that mountain was shaking and crumbling under the weight of this, and it was a fearsome thing. The writer of the Hebrews says that even Moses himself said, this was a terrifying sight. I am full of fear and trembling. This was no little thing. This was not God coming down in a quiet voice in a cloud, a wispy voice talking to them. This was God in his, some of his fullness speaking to them, and they were responding in fear. This is, not, this is one of my pet peeves. I'm just going to take a little, my train is going to take a little side rail here. I talk to people sometimes, and sometimes our conversation, I talk to people a lot of times. That's another English one, right? There are many times I talk to people, we talk about God, and they say, oh, yeah, uh, I pray to the man upstairs. You ever heard that, the man upstairs? I cringe at that. God is not the man upstairs. God is the ruler, creator, sustainer of this universe who, if he appeared in his fullness right now, would vaporize all of us. God is not the man upstairs. He's not our best buddy. He is the God of the universe, the all-eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God. So no wonder, as they appeared here, they thought they were in great danger. Not only is he not the man upstairs, sometimes we think of him as this harmless grandfatherly figure, right? It's the guy with the white hair and a beard, maybe a little absent-minded, a little crotchety sometimes, uh, but nevertheless a a grandfatherly figure. No, that's not who our God is. And then in verse 27, this is their solution. They say, we are afraid. We don't want to hear from God anymore. So their solution is, Go near and hear, and this is them talking to Moses, go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us, all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. I, as I was looking at this, I think there's a humorous element here to this. Uh, it certainly wasn't intended that way, but I find a humorous element. So here are all the people, and Moses is standing here, and God's up there on the mountain, and they're telling Moses, we are going to go over here because we don't want to talk to God anymore. You, you go talk to him. We'll talk about throwing somebody under the bus, right? Moses is just like them. He's flesh and blood. So they say, we don't want to talk to God. You go talk to God. And uh, we'll wait over here for you to hear from him and you come and tell us. And we're going to circle back with that in a couple moments. So the setting, God rescues his people from Egypt. He gives them this covenant, this agreement of how they are to live, how, what they are to do what the the consequences are, his desire for their flourishing, their thriving. They respond to him in fear, backing away and say, Moses, would you please 
uh, talk to God for us and let us know what He has to say. Many of you know that I'm a medical doctor, and one of the things that happens, uh, there, this has happened more than once, I've been sitting back in the exam room, the door is open, I'm sort of in between patients, and I'm hearing two nurses talking down the hallway. One is an older, more experienced nurse who has been working with us for a while. One is a new nurse who just started working, and I'm hearing a conversation that goes something like this. No, I can't go talk to him. You can go talk to him. It's okay. He's not going to, he's a nice guy. No, I can't do that. He's the doctor. So I'm just sitting there being amused and a little troubled at the same time uh, because I like to think I'm approachable and I'm sort of an all-around nice guy. So any of you who are nurses out here, my apologies to those of you of my profession who have bit your head off when you call them and so forth. But I, I try not to be that way. I want uh, to be approachable. I don't want people to be afraid to come to me. Uh, that's all to say, let's look at how God responds to their fear, right? So they said, we are afraid of God. We don't want to talk to him, even though God came down to speak to them. He said, we don't want to hear from God anymore. Moses, you do this for us. Verse 28, the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you possess. What does God not do here in verse 28? He says, they are right in what they have said. He doesn't say, no, 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 I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. I want you to come. He says, no, you are right. You are right in what you said. And he accepts their proposal to have Moses be the intermediary. Now, he had already appointed Moses as the intermediary, so it's not like he was looking for suggestions. So he says he will deal with them through Moses. So what's going on here? God reveals his heart's desire, and look what he says in verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and their descendants forever. God is not trying to secure their obedience by scaring them into obedience. He's trying to show them who he really is, that he is worthy of their entire lives that he is worthy of their entire devotion as the awesome, great, glorious God of the universe, and he desires that their heart be fully obedient to him for their good. This perfect obedience, his expectation, if you look down there in verse 32, he says, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left. He wants unswerving obedience. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, this perfect obedience would result in this perfect life, in this full human flourishing. So God gave to his people his perfect law, which they were to perfectly obey in order to have the perfect life in perfect relationship with him. I mean, who wouldn't want to sign up with that, right? 
So that's basically what happened. We're going to spend a few moments now to look at some observations about some implications of this for us, though, to, get to, to look into this a little deeper. There are two observations I wanted to make. Number one, God is perfect. God is good. God is holy. God is up there. He alone can make the rules. Notice these are called the Ten Commandments. These are not the ten useful suggestions, the ten great ideas, the ten general guidelines, the ten helpful hints. These are the Ten Commandments. And perfect obedience is what is required from God, 100%. 100% perfect obedience. I was reminded, again, as I was reflecting on this, the first day of medical school, there are only two things that I remember distinctly and clearly from the first day of medical school in August of 1976. A whole group of us sitting in the auditorium, I guess excited to be there, we're taking our anatomy class, and they hand us the syllabus. You know what the syllabus is, right? These are the dates of the lectures. Here are your reading assignments. Here's what's coming due. They told us two things. One is you're going to add 10,000 new words to your vocabulary this year. I don't even know how many I already knew, so I don't even know what that number is. But the other thing is it's not something they told us, it's something I read. I'm reading through the syllabus and I'm looking at the assignments and okay, yeah, here's the first reading assignment in our textbook and medical textbooks are not light reading. I mean, it's, it's the best sleeping pill I ever discovered. <laughs> the first 200 pages of the textbook are, are due as the first assignment. I mean, some books are 200 pages, right? And then I look more closely and guess what the date due for that assignment? That day, the very day that I'm reading this is the assignment is due for the first 200 pages. I have not caught up since. I have been behind since 1976, and I'm still trying to catch up, and I have not caught up. There's a very similar thing going on here. I believe that it says here that God wrote on these stone tablets. These, I don't even think the dust was cleared off yet when a careful look at this would realize, I can't keep this. I can't do this, even in our best efforts. How am I going to do this 100% of the time? As a matter of fact, I've already failed. If they were to look at those Ten Commandments honestly and say, well, you know, I lied last week. God, can I, have a, can I do a do-over? Can I start now? No, this is my righteous, holy standard for you. The law is not dumbed down. God doesn't say, all right, well, we'll accept 99%. Oh, how about 80%? Oh, well, 60% pass rate. How is that? No, God says 100% perfect compliance, perfect obedience to this law is what was required for you to have the perfect life and perfect relationship with me. And when Jesus comes later, he doesn't soften it. He says, don't think I came to abolish the law. There's not one letter I or one little period that's going to pass away from the law until everything's finished. I didn't come to abolish the law. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 33, I'd like to read that in the negative, which tells us the kind of problem that we are in because of this. If you do not walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, you will not live, but you will die. It will not go well with you, and you will not live long in peace and security and safety. And an honest look, 
Remember, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. What's the standard? If we look at the law and compare our lives to the law, we have a problem. We have a problem. There's a perfect standard that we cannot reach. So the first observation I want to make is that God is perfect. He alone can make the rules, and that's a standard that we cannot reach. But what else do we see about God here, though? We see that God is gracious. We see that God is gracious. What does it mean that He is gracious? It means He shows His favor, His kindness on us by taking the initiative towards us. He rescued them out of Egypt. They weren't, there was no way they could save themselves. He went to them. He drew them out of Egypt. They didn't know how they were to live. He came to them with the law. He took the initiative. He is showing his grace and favor. But the big thing I want to focus on here out of this passage, when I was reading, I said, wow, look at that. Because this is very key, I think, for us to understand. And we've sort of danced around it before. But when the people say to Moses, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us. Oh, I'm sorry. I said that wrong. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us what the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And God says, yes, Moses, you send them back to their tents. You come to me. I will tell you what's going on, and then you tell them. What has Moses just become? He has become a mediator for them. He has become their mediator. They could not stand face to face with a perfect God. Neither can you, neither can I. We cannot stand face to face with a holy God in our having disobeyed his perfect and holy and righteous standard. Moses becomes their mediator. He is the one who stands between God and them to, in a sense, buffer God's holiness from their sinfulness. Now, before I say the next thing, I have to give you a, a, a spoiler alert because many of you don't want to, to ruin the end of the story. I learned this just a few years ago to my dismay. If I'm reading a book, I like to start in chapter one and read straight through to the end. But I have found that there are people after about two or three chapters, after they know the characters and what's going on, they want to go to the end of the book to see, all right, who's still here? Uh, who died? Who didn't die? How did this end? Once they know that, then they can come back and they can really enjoy the book. How many people in this room are like that? Yeah, yeah, there, there are people like that. How many are like that and didn't want to admit it? I'm, I'm not trying, yeah, yeah, there are a couple more hands are up there, yeah. So, and it was two members of my own family where I learned this from. I just, it, that boggles my mind. But they say that's how they get their uh, joy out of reading some of these uh, stories. Well, I have to give you the spoiler alert. Moses is the mediator between God and men, but the story is not about Moses. Moses is a shadow of someone who's coming later, and that someone who's coming later is Jesus Christ himself. Here we have an early presentation of the gospel, we have an early presentation of the good news. As a matter of fact, we find later in the Bible that God gave the law not so that we could obey it, but to show us how far short we would fall from obeying it and to point to us that we needed someone to rescue us, 
We needed a mediator. We need a savior. Moses becomes that mediator for them, but he is just a shadow. He is just the precursor of the mediator who is coming, Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel, which we see right here in an early form. Well, what are some practical implications for us? I have said several times already that God gives us His perfect law, that we are perfectly obeyed so that we may have the perfect life and perfect relationship with Him. Is that still true after what we've seen? Yeah, that's still true. God has not dumbed down His law. Perfect obedience, 100% obedience is still demanded by God. And because we can't obey, there's a huge gap now between us and God. I'm sorry, between us and God. I got that backwards, didn't I? I was going to do it this way, and then I got mixed up. So let me start that. There's a huge gap between us and God. And the reason the gap is this small is that my arms aren't any longer, right? That gap goes way up and way down, but we'll have to use this for purposes of illustration. And how do we try to bridge that gap? There are two ways we try to bridge that gap. One is we try really, really, really hard to be really, really, really good so we can get up there. But you know what? We always fall short. What's the other way? We say, well, God didn't really mean don't steal. He meant don't steal most of the time. Or he didn't mean don't lie, just don't tell a big lie. So what do we do? We bring the standard down so it's a little easier for us to get to. So we try to bridge the gap either by trying really, really hard to be good or by bringing the standard down. And some of us bring the standard down and say, well, there is no God. I don't have, I'm not accountable to anybody. I don't have to do anything. I can live my own life. Well, that's erasing the standard altogether. So if I have nothing to shoot for, I'll hit it all the time. God says, no, my righteousness, my holiness, my perfect standard is here and you are here. The gospel gives us another way, a third way. Since we cannot perfectly obey, God sent to us His perfect Son, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed the law for us, who paid the penalty for our sin for us, so that God is both perfect and gracious at the same time. He does not change His holy standard. He does not change His perfect standard, and yet He is gracious to us by bridging that gap for us. This, that's a gap we could not bridge. He bridges it for us. Jesus comes, fully obeys the law, everything 100% for us, dies for our penalty for that sin, and brings us back into relationship with God. Some of you who know that verse in Matthew 5 that I quoted before, where Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish the law there's another thing in there that I left out. But to fulfill it, I did not come to abolish the law. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 17, for those of you who want to look for that. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is our mediator. He's the Moses who God sent for us to fulfill that law for us so that it could be fulfilled in us. And that's part of what our study, a large part of what our study in Romans 8 is going to be. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is this. 
we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We need both. We are more sinful and flawed. That is, we cannot live up to God's righteous, holy standard. But we are more loved and accepted. God graciously provides a mediator for us through Jesus Christ. And we see that here in this picture of the people saying, Moses, we can't stand before God. You be that mediator for us. We say the same thing. God, I cannot stand before you. I need Jesus Christ to stand for me. Why is this important? Some of you are out there chafing and saying, well, I can't believe God is this big, mean, nasty person who's going to scare us and frighten us. Well, the fact of the matter is that's who he is in his person. If we were in the presence of the greatness and glory of God, it's not that God's trying to be mean. It's just who he is and who we are. But this is important because the gospel will not be very glorious to us until sin has become very grievous to us. The gospel will not be very glorious to us until sin has become very grievous to us. We will not know how much the gospel restores us to God until we're able to see how far sin has separated us. As long as we think that there is something we can do to earn our way back into God's favor, we can work our way back into God's favor, or God didn't really mean what he said, until we realize that God is holy and high and righteous and beyond us so far that we could never hope to get there and that we are so sinful that there's nothing we could do to earn that back. Until we see that, we'll never really understand what Jesus Christ did for us in the gospel. The gospel will not be very glorious to us until sin has become very grievous. Next week, we're going to look at Romans 7. So we're still not at Romans 8 yet. We're going to look at Romans 7. The title of that is The Law and Me, Not Perfect Together. The Law and Me, Not Perfect Together. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to leave you with a question. How are you this week going to bridge the gap between you and God? Because even as a believer, there is still that gap. How are you going to bridge that gap? As an unbeliever, are you going to continue to either bring God's standard down and say it doesn't matter, or you're going to work really hard in your religious works to get there? Or as someone who believes in Jesus Christ, are you going to say, well, I still need to work. I still need to earn God's favor. And we lose track. We lose sight of what the gospel really is, that Jesus Christ paid it all. He obeyed for us 100%. There's nothing more that I can do to earn his favor. There's nothing more I can do to earn his love. Am I going to live into that grace, into that relationship that God has created for me? How are you going to bridge that gap between you and God this week? Try real hard, bring God down, or the gospel of Jesus Christ? And does what you say you believe, does what I say I believe match how I live? I say I believe that the gospel is one of grace and God's favor, but sometimes I live as if I have to earn God's favor. I live as if I do something wrong, somehow God has forgotten me, or if life doesn't go well, I must have not prayed the right thing. But God loves us and desires relationship with us. I'm going to pray to close this time, uh, and we're going to go into a song next, which uh, reminds us of this, that we are more than conquerors, which comes right out of 
Romans 8. There is no condemnation, there is no guilt or shame for those who have been covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's what Deuteronomy 5 is leading us to. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to look at your word. We trust that what has been spoken this morning are not the words of a human being, the words of a frail man, but the words of Almighty God, empowered by your spirit in our hearts and lives. And I pray, Father, that you would have your way with us as we go this week. Help us to recognize that there is a gap between us and you because of our sin, but Jesus Christ has bridged that gap. We no longer have to bridge that gap. We no longer have to bring you down to our level or try real hard to get ourselves to yours. Jesus Christ has done all of that for us. And so I pray for those who don't know you that perhaps this week they could take a step closer to trusting you with their lives, realizing that you are a righteous judge and this is your perfect and right and holy standard. And those of us who do know you, help us to live in that grace and not continue to live as if we are enslaved to obedience to these rules. And may you have your way with us this week to your glory and for our good. And guide us through this week and as we gather again next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, David. That was great. That was great message. And I just ask that you rise and, and sing more than.